If you were between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. What a line. That we would take God at his word, that we'd believe it. That we would believe that what God would say about us is true. What a sweet call. This morning we are starting a new series, which I've called Living in Hope. We'll be walking through the book of 1 Peter. By the way, at Calvary, we like teaching through whole books of the Bible. It's a good diet for a believer. Let me give you three quick reasons why. First, when we teach whole books of the Bible, it allows us to walk through the whole counsel of God. Let me be frank with you. When you walk through whole books of the Bible, you come to some passages and think, I don't want to teach this. Left to myself, I would never teach you this. I would want to make you happy and make you like me. But when you walk through books of the Bible, you come to hard truths and you go, gosh, we've got to lean into this. This is God's word. This is what God has for us. It keeps us and gives us a balanced biblical theology in which to approach life. It gives us the whole counsel of God. But it also keeps the whole Bible in context. Because as you start walking passage to passage to passage... You start to see things build, and you see themes build, and you see themes repeated. I once heard a pastor say that if you got five letters in the mail, you would never open them and read two lines from the beginning of the first, and then flip to the third and and read the ending, and then go on with your day only to read a couple of more lines out of a different letter tomorrow. It, It wouldn't make sense at all. And yet often we approach the Bible with this idea that a couple of verses sprinkled here, a couple of verses sprinkled there, and it it ought to fill me up. And we miss the greater message that God would have for us. Teaching Bible and whole books keeps everything in context. And when we teach whole books, it also helps to model for the church Bible study and Bible reading. Uh, We're going to spend the next 15 weeks in 1 Peter In that time, I hope you'll take the season to read the book on your own. Uh, Maybe even dedicate yourself to read it every week. Uh, The more you are willing to delve into this book with us for the next 15 weeks, the more you'll get out of the teaching series. And I think it gives God an opportunity to do additional work in your lives as we walk into this series. So we'll be looking at the book of 1 Peter. And as we start off this morning, we're just going to look at a a small piece. In fact, we're just going to look at the first two verses of this letter that Paul, or excuse me, Peter, (laughs) wrote to these churches scattered throughout northern Asia. We'll talk about that in here in a minute. And just looking at these two short verses, we basically have three objectives this morning. One, we want to give you greater insight into who Peter was. And I promise you this, we've got some stuff for you this morning that you may not know about Peter. Uh, I was fascinated to learn things about him as well. And we want to give you insight to who he's writing to. And in the process of looking at Peter and his audience, I think we'll find some things that God has to say about us that we need to take him at his word on. And that we need to claim and walk out. So let's dig on a 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. When Paul starts off his letter, he says this. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... Now we're six words in and we're pausing. 
Because this actually says something to us. Because when Peter begins the letter, what he starts by is stating his name as the sender. And of course, this is how they wrote letters in ancient biblical times. But then he gives you a sentence and he tells you how he's related to Jesus. Now, why that becomes crucial for us is when we think about our own lives, here Peter could have claimed any number of titles. And I read through one of the Gospels in the last couple of weeks. I read through a couple of different stories and other passages, trying to get a big picture of Peter's life. And when Peter writes, Peter could have said things like, Peter, you know the guy who walked on water? Peter had some cool claims to fame he could have pointed at. You know, I'm Peter. I've actually seen Elijah. He had some good things going for him. He had some things he could have bragged on, looked at, considered. And he could have even been less spiritual and say, you know, I used to be an awesome fisherman and I gave it all up because I'm so humble. And I followed Jesus. But when Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I actually don't want us to ever miss this in an introduction to a letter, what Peter starts to assert to us is, what is your principal identity? Because Peter could have written anything about himself. He could have written anything that was significant about himself. And yet what he broadcasts about himself is how he's related to Jesus, that he is a disciple, he's a servant of Jesus, an emissary of Jesus, and that says something. And it forces me into some realities, like who am I? And what do I want to broadcast about myself? Am I Ben, pastor of Calvary Church? Am I Ben, the husband of Pam? Am I Ben, the dad of Pierce, Anna, Kate, and Claire? Maybe even more vulnerably, am I Ben, the guy who desperately wants to be liked? Am I Ben, the guy who really, really, really hopes you don't think bad things about me? Am I Ben, the guy who desires affirmation and quietly seeks to get credit for things he does? See, in either positive or negative ways, we can identify ourselves and we can carry out identities. And we can broadcast to the world whether or not we intend to or not. And yet here in six words, Peter identifies himself with a primary identity of following Jesus. His identity was tied to his position in Jesus. In all honesty, I believe that that six sentences, realizing, stepping into that, lays the foundation for the teaching that Peter will have for us in this letter. So let's dig in a little bit more on the life of Peter. In John chapter 1, Peter's introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew, which is actually a pretty fantastic reminder to us that people get introduced to Jesus. You know, sometimes if you've grown up in the church, you've lived your whole life here, you just assume mommies and daddies tell people about Jesus And if people haven't heard about Jesus, it's their mommy's and daddy's fault, not ours. And yet there's this reality where we have a responsibility biblically to be talking about him, to be introducing people to him. And you find that in in John 1. And you see this guy, Andrew, after spending time with Jesus with himself, John 1, 41 and 42, it says this. And he first found his own brother, Simon. And said to him, we found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Andrew loves his brother enough to say, I found the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. It's an Aramaic word, which means Peter. Let's pause for a second and consider that. Upon meeting Simon, Jesus walks up to him and gives him a nickname. Normally, you reserve nicknames for people you really like. People you have a sweetness for and an affection for. People who've done great things. And yet Jesus walks up to Peter and says, I'm going to give you a nickname. And not just any nickname, by the way. He says, you're the rock. That's what it means in Greek. You're the rock. This little interaction where Jesus, upon meeting Peter, believing in him so much to give him a precious nickname. And by the way, do you know that the Bible asserts the same thing about you? Revelation 2, 17 says that when you reach heaven, that Jesus will hand you a white stone that has a special name ascribed on it that will only be known to him. Now, if you want to lean into that, that means Jesus has this precious view of you. That he's got a name for you. That's his. Because he loves you so much. I remember when Pierce was small, we were going places, we were around Pam's family, and I used to always call Pierce my little buddy. And uh, I remember Pam's mom walked up to me one day, and she goes, you call him your little buddy. I said, yeah. Is that what we're going to name him? <laughs> no, no. That's just, he's my little buddy. He's, I have a precious nickname for my son because I love him so much. I desire being with him. I enjoy him. And God thinks the same way about you. It says so in Revelation. We get the illustration here with Peter. You're the rock. But here's the funniest part about it. Because if you lean into this, you think Peter's name is Peter. And if you're really biblical, you think Peter's name is Simon. And here's the crazy part. None of those are his real name. In fact, he reminds us in the beginning of 2 Peter that his name is actually Simeon. Simeon is a Hebrew name. Simon, not a Hebrew name. He actually reduces his name from Simeon to Simon because he's working in a Greek culture which tells you that he started to adapt some of the worldly lifestyles around him. That he started to deny a little bit of who he was to be more acceptable to the world. So Simeon, who now chooses to go by Simon, gets his name changed to Peter. And that's clearly such a rocking thing in his life, pun intended, that it changes how we look at him 2,000 years ago. What we call him. And if you've read through the Gospels, you'd certainly find that Peter is prominent amongst them. In fact, many speculate that he was by far the oldest of the twelve. One of the many reasons he is the loudest, the brashest, the boldest. And ends up in many leadership positions. Mark 1.30 asserts to us that he is married. And Mark would know. In fact, it's widely regarded that the Gospel of Mark was actually given, written, you know, Mark wasn't a disciple. Peter actually was the primary source for Mark's gospel. Mark and Peter would have been close friends. Mark would know that Peter was married. 
And by the way, if you've ever wondered about Peter's wife, she's listed in 1 Corinthians 9.5 as saying that she was a believer and that she traveled with him in missions work. Learned that this week also. Peter's life is an interesting study of one who, if you really want to lean in, one who chose the path of the world until he met Jesus. And upon meeting Jesus, changed everything. Walked away from his life and pursued the Savior thoroughly over and over. And absolutely, he was brash. You'll be hard-pressed to find a guy who speaks up more in crowds when he should keep his mouth shut. But he was a guy who was loyal to a fault and his devotion to Jesus was so excessive that he bragged about it. And yet in other moments denied him immediately. And when I think about Peter's ups and downs, his highs and lows, it reminds me, well, of us. Peter was a normal guy, leading a normal life, who gave his life to Jesus Christ. And I think the most striking things about him in the Bible is the transition that happens in his life after he receives the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And you see a man who walks with a brashness, start walking with an understanding of who he is, and this Jesus he serves, and he walks into the crowd that not more than a month ago had yelled, crucify him to Jesus, walks into the same crowd and begins to testify about Jesus, not caring if they crucify him, not caring if they kill him. And he preaches some of the most stirring sermons you'll read in the early part of Acts. In Acts 2.36, he ends his sermon this way. He says, and let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified, claiming before the Jews that Jesus was both God and the Messiah, and they killed him. You want to be liked? Go in front of a crowd who just killed your master and convict them of everything they just did. Jesus was God. He was the Messiah, and you killed him. And Peter walks away from that moment and continues, continues to be bold. The life of Peter, as we know, moves from him rejecting the idea of Jesus dying to denying it, to being restored after, to preaching the death of Jesus, to finding in Jesus the ultimate meaning and purpose for his life. And as we see later in the letter, actually, Peter writes this from Rome. So let's look a little bit into who he wrote this to. Because after the stoning of Stephen in Acts 6, we really don't know much about Peter's life. It's thought that he traveled a little bit in the northern parts of Asia Minor. That's why he writes this letter to him. He ultimately ends up in Rome. He writes this letter to them. But that's this letter that he writes, let's see what it says, continuing on. Peter says, To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, And Peter says a lot here, too, and we don't want to miss it, so let's start with geography. Peter says that he's writing this letter to people, and I've got a map for you. I conveniently found a good one that makes it pretty clear. This is modern-day Turkey that lays it out for us, that he's basically in modern-day Turkey writing to churches in the northern part. You would know Paul went on a missionary journey covering the south and the west, had desires to go north, never got there. Peter did. So Peter writes these 
exiles a letter. Here it calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. That's what the ESV says. If you're carrying a different version of the Bible, it might read differently. The New American Standard says those who reside as aliens scattered throughout. Ends with saying that those who are chosen. The NIV says that these are God's elect strangers in the world. And by the way, let me pause and make a statement. If God calls us aliens, strangers, and foreigners, friends, if there's a people we ought to relate to, it ought to be aliens, strangers, and foreigners. If there's a people who ought to love aliens, strangers, and foreigners, it had better be the house of God. Now take it and walk with it what you will, but when God calls us all of these things, aliens, strangers, and foreigners, what you find here is Peter conveying two strong ideas about these people that were realities for them, that are realities for us, that we need to lean into, and you'd be shocked to find all we can dig out of a minor introduction in a letter, but here goes. First, Peter says these are people removed from their homes. These are exiles from a dispersion. Now, whether or not he's trying to relate it back to a a Jewish dispersion that would have happened under the minor prophets, or whether he's referring to an Acts 8 dispersion where believers in Acts 8 are persecuted heavily, and so all the believers have to spread out, what he's trying to articulate to these people is that they're strangers, they're aliens, What he's putting before them is this idea that this world is not their home. That they're living in a foreign land and in a foreign culture. And you find this to be a predominant theme in the Bible and in the New Testament. Paul returns to this theme a couple of times, including the second chapter where he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Peter there makes application. You're foreigners. This isn't your land. You don't belong here. Don't live like you do. So Peter starts to assert to these people early on in acknowledging who they are. Having stated his identity, he wants to nail down theirs. This world is not... Your home. When the author of Hebrews summed up some of our spiritual forefathers of the Old Testament, he asserts in Hebrews eleven thirteen, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And listen to this. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. As a part of their faith commendation... God says they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. They acknowledged like this world was not their home. They acknowledged that they belonged somewhere else and to to someone else. And this world's not their home. And friends, it's not yours either. And when we embrace that, when we lean into that, We save ourselves from a reality of a lot of pain we cause ourselves. When we work towards, we achieve, we pursue the comforts of this world. Because when we try to find our comfort here, when we try to find our hope here, we try to find our 
meaning or purpose. When we try to be liked, esteemed, we find that it always falls short. Our hope is not here. Our meaning is not here. Our purpose is not here. Our identity is not here. Paul tells them, you're exiles, you're strangers. This is not your home. As unsettling as that idea can be, Peter pairs it with another phrase to balance it out, and he puts it in equal, if not stronger, emphasis. If we lean into this reality that this world is not our own, you could get left feeling alone. You could get left feeling isolated. And Peter pairs that with another reality by saying, you're not just exiles, you're the elect exiles. Literally saying, you are chosen. You may not be wanted here. You may not belong here. You may not fit in here. But that doesn't mean that you're not wanted, you don't belong, and you don't fit. Just don't go looking here for it. What Peter asserts to these people is this world is not your home, but it doesn't mean you're not alone. The ESV calls them the elect, the NAS, the chosen. By the way, the difference, if you're a nerd, is in how the wording is put. And how do you translate something that's written into a noun, but used as an adjective in the English language? That's why you get different versions here. But the idea here in Peter's writing in Greek is a noun form chosen. It is who you are, chosen. It doesn't modify who you are. It's your identity of who you are. You are a chosen one of God. It declares something about you. Cut it either way, they may have been foreigners with respect to the culture they lived in. But Peter wanted them to know they were at home with God. And he leans into this idea of being chosen as we step into the second verse. And he continues by saying, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and mercy Or may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And what Peter says to them is these three things. That not only are you foreigners, but you're chosen foreigners. You belong to me. He says you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We'll lean into that a little. You were chosen according to the sanctification of the Spirit. We'll lean into that a little. You were chosen for obedience in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we'll lean into that a little. But you should at least pause and note, we have a Trinitarian text on our hand. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all working on behalf of you. And watch this. Telling you you're chosen. God the Father testifying to that. God the Son testifying to that. God the Holy Spirit testifying to that. The triune nature of the Creator God testifies in this passage that the Trinity wants you to know how much He likes you. How much you're chosen by God. Peter 
Peter says we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the reality is that might make some of us uncomfortable. There's a theological term here that some struggle with. And I just lean into that now and tell you we're not talking about theology. We're talking about the Bible here. We're teaching a Bible passage. If you are uncomfortable with your theology, you've got two options. Take a sharpie to your Bible and mark it out. Or try to put it in tension and balance with what the Bible says about everything else. These are the tensions we'll walk in. Because when it says you're chosen by God and you get uncomfortable with that, Peter goes ahead and clarifies that for you by saying you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, if I wanted to try to make that sound like something else, when I get to the foreknowledge of God, I don't have a choice but to tell you God picked you before the foundations of the earth. Why? Because that's what Peter says here pretty clearly. And in fact, it's the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 1.4. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we'd be holy and blameless before him. God says, I picked you. And I picked you before the foundation of the world. And we could make that say a lot of things. And we could push it to some extremes. But if you really want to study the Bible and pick out the emphasis that it's going for here, if you miss the fact that God picked you before the foundation of the world, the push here, the thrust of it is, before you could have screwed it up. Before you could have ever done anything to earn it. So depending on how you view grace, whether or not you think you're awesome, and you think you deserve for Jesus to die on your behalf, and you think that based on all the things you do, you can earn God's favor, God says, no. I got you long before you did that. Before you even thought of it. Before you had an intention about it. I got you covered. And there's some of us in this room who go the other way. That we lean toward this reality that a loving God could never love me because of what I've done, because of what I've participated in, because of who I've been around. That if the people in this room knew me at all, there's no way they'd love me. There's no way they'd allow me to be in their friendship. There's no way God could take the weight of or the burden of my sin. And God says, no. Before you did any of that, I picked it. And lean into foreknowledge. God knew what you were going to do with your life. He knew how you'd mess up. He knew how you'd screw up. He knew how you'd take advantage of him. He knew all of it and still said, you are mine. So it takes away all of our excuses, all of our rationale, all of our peripheral things that we could pin our salvation to. And God says, it's my work. I claimed you. You're mine. You have been chosen. And it is a sweet theology of grace. One of my favorite pastors and theologians is a Catholic priest named Brennan Manning. I wrote a book called uh, The Ragamuffin Gospel when I was in college. 
radically transformed my life at that point. Uh, Brennan is for not famous for a handful of things. This is one of them. God loves us unconditionally as we are and not as we should be. Friends, we lean into this. Don't paint a better picture of you and think that that's who God likes. God knows our hidden sin. God knows the secrets we keep. He unconditionally loves us as we are and not as we should be. So if you come to these New Year's resolutions that you've made for yourself or these hopes or these dreams or these little ways that you want to improve yourself, just know it doesn't change your standing with God. Because He unconditionally loves you according to who you are, based on his foreknowledge of what you would do, and picking you long before you could do any of it. This is what the Bible says, so we're leaning into it. Peter says that you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He says that you were chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. Some more expensive words. And what Peter says here is not only did God choose you, which is really sweet. God positionally sanctified you. He positionally sanctified you, and that is to say that that God deemed you worthy in his choosing. What I mean by that is when God chose you, it's not like when you're in the third grade and there's a kickball drawing And there's 20 kids lined up, and you're the fat kid who gets picked last that somebody had to take. No, you're positionally sanctified, which means you're deemed worthy based on his choosing. That you're not the eighth-round pick in a nine-round draft, if you're a fantasy football guy. That you're a first-round pick in every draft. That you're his desire, his choice. He positionally sanctified you. He deemed you worthy. He deems you righteous. And with God, it's never a question about whether or not you're worthy of his love. He declared it about you, has set you apart. So it's not about what you can do. It's not about what you will do. It's not about what you should do. It's about what he has done. And because of what he's done, we're declared righteous. So God has picked us. He's chosen us. He's positionally sanctified us. He's deemed us righteous. He says further on, And you were chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of With his blood. And there's some of you here who lean towards Phariseeism that read that and go, oh, good, now we get to obey. Now I get to do something. Here's my checklist. And do you see how this echoes Paul's writing to the Ephesians that not only did he pick us, not only did he set us apart, but he picked us that we'd pursue holiness and blamelessness. And here in Peter's words, It's obedience to Jesus. And this isn't rule following and it's not moralism. And how do we know that? Because it's tied to the sprinkling of blood. And not just any blood. This is not the blood of a ram or goat. 
This is the blood of Jesus who's chose you and marked you out for obedience so that you would see, you get the example and be illustrated for you that your obedience to Jesus Christ is not about you proving your worth. It's not about you accomplishing anything. Your obedience is not so you can have a checklist, so you can balance your rights and wrongs. Your obedience to Jesus Christ does not change your value to him or how he perceives you. Your obedience to Jesus Christ does not make up for your mistakes because he's already deemed you righteous. No, we pursue obedience having been declared righteous. Because he says it's who we are. And because he tells us that this is how we reflect who he is to the world. So we pursue obedience so that we would perfect his image in our lives. So that people want to know what Jesus looks like, they'd look at you and me. Now friends, Peter writes this to a group of exiles living in northern Asia who weren't called to fit into their culture. And we live in now 2016, and some of us try so hard to fit in. And in fact, as we walk through this book of 1 Peter, there's going to be some teachings, some illustrations that are going to fly right over our head. Because our idea of persecution is lame. Because our understanding of conforming to his image is poor. We don't look like Jesus so we can impress him. We look like Jesus. We pursue him. We pursue looking like him. Which is radically different than the world. So that when we have struggles, it's not how do I fit in more in this situation. It's how do I reflect Jesus more in this situation. If I walk into a tension or a struggle, it's not how can I be liked or appreciated or esteemed. How do I reflect Jesus more in this situation? The more we do that, the more this book will play out in our lives. The more that this reality of living in hope will prove to be true for us. Because we're not living in the esteem of the world anymore. We're living in the esteem of the Redeemer of the world. We're living through Him and for Him and for His glory. As we start this book of 1 Peter in the series called Living in Hope, we're called to live in hope, understanding what he's done for us, understanding the implications it has for our lives. And just as we sang before I preached, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, to say, thus saith the Lord. God said it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to live it out like it's true. We're going to live in hope. And it starts with our identity. Who we are. Where we find our value. 
Because if we don't start it there, it starts to just become about right actions. It starts to become us just behavior modifying ourselves. Friends, this passage assaults and asserts our identity. It tells us that Jesus Christ is the only valuable thing we have. Because it's not about our actions. It's not about what we could do, can do, should do. It's about what he did. And Peter in this letter will assert to us over and over and over again that we embrace the status as strangers and aliens in this land, that this world is not our home, and that we'll never find true comfort here, and we don't need to. Because who he is is enough. And what he's done is enough. And what he's provided for you and the death and resurrection of his son and giving you the Holy Spirit is enough. That we have more than we need. Paul would write that we have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Peter says in 2 Peter, we have everything we need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. When we embrace our reality as strangers and we embrace who we are and what he says about us, we live in hope. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for calling Peter to yourself. It's one of those moments I want to watch in heaven on a DVD player. Just to see Peter's response as a guy who had no idea what was going to happen to him when you called him. He had no idea all that you'd accomplish in his life. Had no idea how the world would change according to his obedience. But leaned into one reality that you loved him. And that when he found his identity in you, it changed everything for him. He rejected everything that the world had given him and fed him. And he pursued you with a reckless abandon. Father, as we walk into this book of 1 Peter, I pray that we get this image that God loves us, that he picked us, that he set us apart to do a work through us while we live in a land that's not ours, awaiting for a calling home when we'll celebrate with all the saints the tremendous work that you've done at the cross in redeeming legions and legions and myriads and myriads of people who did not deserve a lick of it. Thank you for the great hope of salvation we have. Let us live in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.